How true, isn't it? As, uh, as fathers, um, we always have to remember that there are people watching us. That, this isn't just a Father's Day issue. This re- applies to mothers. This applies to unmarried people. This applies to all of us. As believers in Jesus Christ, there are people that watch us. There are people that are looking to us to be an example to them. But today I want to specifically talk to fathers. Everyone else can listen along as well, but I really want to sp- talk specifically to fathers. You know, I heard this story of three guys that were uh, talking, and, and after a while the topic of funerals came up. And the one guy was saying, you know, what do you want people to say about you at your funeral? And the one guy thought for a second and said, well, I would want people to say that, that I was a great guy and, and I cared about my community. They nodded. The second guy said, well, I I just want people to say that I was a great husband and and I was a great father to my children. And they they nodded together. And and the third guy thought for a second and said, well, what I want people to say at my funeral is, look, he's still moving. (laughs) Because the reality is, I think that, uh, that in the world today, there's, you know, people see death as an end. They don't see it as a beginning. For us as Christians, death is a graduation. It means that school is over and real life has begun. I think it was uh, Woody Allen who once said, I'm not, it's not that I'm afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. Um, and I think that's true for a lot of people. They, they, they think about death in a strange way. But what do you want people to say about you when you are gone? What do you want people to say at your funeral? The question is not if we will die, but how we will die. That is how people will remember us. I want us to read a passage of scripture today that comes from the last words in the last chapter of the last book written in the last days of the Apostle Paul. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 to 8. It says this, In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of His appearing and His kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But I tell you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering. And the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Paul says, Timothy... I give you this charge. What does that mean? It means, Timothy, we're not messing around here. I mean, Timothy, let's get down to the core of it. I give you this charge. I give you this command. Timothy, what I'm about to say is of the utmost importance, and so I want you to really listen to what I am about to say to you. You need to seriously consider this. 
What is it that Paul says to Timothy here? He says really three things. He says, Timothy, number one, you need to fulfill your ministry. In other words, complete the work that God has given you to do. God has a plan for each one of our lives. God says in the Bible, before I even knew you, I had appointed you to Jeremiah. He says in other places that all of our lives were numbered before one of them came to be. That when we are born, God has a purpose for our lives. He gives us certain gifts, certain passions, certain abilities, certain things that make us who we are. And He expects us to take those gifts and take those passions and take all that stuff that He's given us and to use it for His kingdom. To glorify Him through it. In John 17 verse 4, Jesus said this. He said, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Don't you wish... Don't you hope that you will be able to pray that same thing at the end of your life? God, I gave you glory in life by completing the work you gave me to do. I did it. I finished the task for which I was sent to earth. Paul reminds Timothy here that, Timothy, if you're going to be able to finish the work... If you're going to be able to fulfill your ministry, you have to know three things. And these are three things that all of us have to know. Number one, we have to know what we're supposed to do. Right? You can't complete your task until you know what that task is. And so, do you understand what your task is? Do you understand what area of ministry that God has given to you? What job He has given you to perform on this earth? For Timothy, it was preaching the Word. He says, Timothy, preach the Word. But for all of us, it's different. Not all of us are called necessarily to preach the word from a pulpit. But each of us have a job, a role to play within the church. So if Paul was to say to you, I want you to do this. John, I want you to do this. Jake, I want you to do this. What would that be? What would that task be that God has called you to? While there are specifics, there are also generalities. That God wants all of us to do a number of different things. We talked about the jar and the rocks last week. What are those non-negotiables? What are those big things that God has called us to do? Well, number one would be worship. Are you a worshiper? Do your children see you in worship? Are you a person that worships God passionately? Is that something that worship is something that just flows out of your life? Number two is fellowship. Are you in a small group? Are you seeking to not only grow in relationship with God, but also in relationship with God's family? Are you someone in fellowship through the church and in small groups? Number three, discipleship. Are you growing in your faith? Are you reading the Bible? Are you spending time in prayer? Are you taking a course where you're, you're developing your spiritual life? Are you a, still a learner? Just because we're not in school anymore doesn't mean that school is, is over for us. All of us are called to learn up until the day that we die. Okay? That's what God expects from us. And number four is evangelism. Are you sharing your faith like we talked about last week? Are you actively sharing Christ with people who don't know about Him? Those are big rocks. Those are non-negotiables. These are things that God expects from all of us. Are you doing it? Do you know what? you are called to do. But number two, do you know when you're called to do it? 
Because there are a lot of people who know what God is calling them to do, but they're just waiting for an opportunity to do it. But God says, Timothy, the time is now. He says, be prepared in season and out of season. You know what that means? That means, Timothy, you have to always be ready. In season or out of season, it means that you are always prepared to use the gifts and the abilities that God has given you. I remember years ago, I was in, with a team that went down to Guatemala to build a church for this little village. And there was a team that had gone ahead of us, and it had laid the foundation. It had put the foundation in the ground, and it had built the walls up. And our job was to go down and finish the church. We were the second and last team that was going. And I remember... When we got there, we were very excited. And we spent the first couple of days really working hard. But then, you know, it's hot out. And, you know, there's, there's so much work still to be done. And there were people on the team that were saying, you know what, let's just go to the beach. Let's just go into town and go shopping. Let's, let's take a couple of days off. And, and, and there's this one guy on the team, I'll never forget what he said. He pulled everyone together and he said, look, when I go home... I don't want to get off the plane and have the people that were on that first team look at us and I have to tell them we didn't finish the job. Instead of finishing the job, we went to the beach, we went swimming, we, 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 we did this, we did that. No, I want to be able to tell that first team that came and laid the foundation that we finished the work. And so you know what? Let's finish the work. We finish the church first and then we go swimming. We finish the church and then we go shopping. Let's finish the work. Let's do it first. Let's do it now. Back in 1956, there's a man by the name of Jack Lowe. Jack Lowe was asked to be a photographer for the Kennedy family. This is before President Kennedy was president of the United States. And the Kennedy family were so impressed by the pictures that Jack Lowe took that they asked him to be the official photographer of his presidential campaign. And after he became president, he was the official White House photographer. He took over his career more than 40,000 pictures of the Kennedy family. Of those 40,000 pictures that Jack Lowe took, maybe 300 of them were published in magazines. And, and I, I mean, we're not talking that he would get, you know, $10, $20 a picture. He would get literally offers for thousands of dollars for every picture that he published. And he had thousands of them, tens of thousands of them. And Jack Lowe knew that the longer it went, the more popular these pictures, these photos would become. And so he had all the negatives of all those pictures he had taken. And he decided to put them in the safest bank vault in the country. The absolute safest bank vault there was on the planet Earth. And that bank vault happened to be located at number five World Trade Center in the World Trade Center building. And on September the 11th, when those planes hit those buildings and they collapsed, that bank vault, which was up on like the fifth floor, fell all the way through the building to the bottom. And it still survived. It was that good of a vault. And yet, unfortunately, the fire that followed was so intense that everything in the vault that wasn't made of like stone or something solid was completely burned to ash. And all of those photographs, those tens of thousands of photographs that he had that were worth literally millions and millions of dollars were all gone. He thought he could just pull those out whenever he wanted to. He could just pull those out whenever he wanted to and he could publish them. But you know what? He missed the opportunity.
They were destroyed in that bank vault. And likewise, God wants us to act now. God doesn't want us to wait later. He doesn't want us to sit on our gifts and wait for just the right time. You know, oh, I think I'll just wait until someone asks me. Oh, I'll just kind of hang back and, 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 you know, maybe next year there'll be a time to use my gifts. No. God says, take what you've received, use it now. Now is the opportunity. We have to know what we have. We have to know when to use it. And lastly, we have to know how to use it. Paul tells Timothy, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. We don't have time to go into all the details of that. But let me just say this, that God never gives you a job to do unless he also gives you the tools to do it. God always gives us everything we need to finish the task. It's our job to finish it. Number one, Paul says, Timothy, make sure you fulfill your ministry. But number two, Timothy, don't just fulfill your ministry, but make sure, Timothy, that you fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. What does that mean? You can go through life fighting the bad fight. <laughs> right? You can go through life and spend your time and your energy and your talents on things that are secondary issues, that aren't of utmost importance. You can waste your time in debating and dealing with secondary issues. Paul says here, Timothy, use your time wisely. Focus on what is important. 1 Timothy 1.3, Paul had said, Timothy, he had said this to Timothy, he said, As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. These promote controversies rather than God's work, which is by faith. Anybody here ever known someone who was like that? That describes them? They're just into all kinds of fight. They love to talk about theological issues. They love to fight about theology. Well, what about this? And what about this? And, and how about this issue? And this little issue here. And that just seems to consume them. You go to a family gathering as a person that's always sitting there. Oh, we got to talk about this and we got to deal with this. And you go to, and you go to that, the, the church and they're always a person that's, well, what about this and what about this? 2 Timothy 2.14, keep reminding them of these things. Warn them before God against quarreling about words, for it is of no value and it only ruins those who listen. Quarreling about words. Wow, what about this little thing? Well, what about this little thing? It's kind of like, you know, they, they miss the whole forest because they focus so intently on each little tree. They focus so much on secondary issues that it consumes their faith. And there's lots of examples of this that I could give. I think one of the examples that I've heard recently is um, that, you know, there, there are, in this area, folks that say that, you know what, you have to only read the King James Version of the Bible, because only the King James Version of the Bible is inspired, you know, and, and, and they, they're, they're causing all these problems in the lives of people by forcing them to only read the King James Bible. There's all kinds of... of, of you know, stuff happening and, and lives are being destroyed because there's such an emphasis on just the King James Bible. And you know what? It's kind of a silly argument. It's a crazy argument. 
I mean, let me give you an example of that argument. Okay, let me give you an example of that argument. Say I was to take John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's a great verse. But I'm going to translate it. So, okay, I'm going to ask John to translate that verse for me. And John stands up and he translates that verse into low German. And I listen to him, uh-huh, uh-huh, oh, that's, that's very interesting. And I say, Henry, can, can, can you translate that, that verse for me? And, and, and Pastor Henry stands up and he translates that verse for me. And I say, uh-huh, uh-huh, yeah, okay. And then I look between the two of them and I think, you know what, I like John's version better. Does that make any sense to you at all? I don't know the original language. I, I don't know low German. You could be standing up and quoting to me a recipe for making fried chicken. I wouldn't know. You know? You could be saying absolutely nothing. You could say the verse absolutely wrong. For me to judge the translation requires that I understand the language. Correct? So if you stand up and you say, oh, well, I like the King James version of that verse better than the NIV version of that verse, then let me ask you, are you an expert in the Greek language? Have you spent your entire life studying Hebrew? Do you know all the nuances and the history behind the Bible? Are you a Bible scholar so that you are able to stand up and say with complete authority that what the English says in the NIV is worse than what the English says in the King James? Of course you're not. You're taking two translations, neither of which you understand from the original, and you're judging them based upon each other as opposed to judging them upon which is accurate. You can only know which is accurate if you've studied the original. It's a secondary issue. If you like reading the King James, God bless you. Read it. Enjoy it. If you like reading the NIV, God bless you. Enjoy it. But let me tell you, there's far more important things that the body of Christ should be talking about than which English version of a Bible you read. Someone once said this, We can worry about the things the Bible doesn't talk about after we've finished doing everything the Bible does talk about. So let's not worry about the secondary. Let's focus primarily on what Jesus says, on the big stuff, on salvation by grace through faith. Let's concentrate on reading the Word of God and on living a lifestyle for Him. And you know what, on these other issues... Let's just be a people of grace and not spend our time and energy on them. Paul says, Timothy, fulfill your ministry, number one. Number two, he says, fight the good fight. Concentrate on what is important. Concentrate on what is primary. And then he lastly, he says this, Timothy, finish well. Finish well. You can run a race and lose in the last 10 feet. You can run a race that's 20 miles. And you run that race perfectly. You can lead that race for 20 miles. And in the last 10 feet, you can fall down and not get up. And lose the race. You see, how you finish the race is a picture upon the entire race. It's important that you finish well. I heard about a recent NCAA cross-country championship that was held in California. 
And uh, in this competition, they had 128 runners. 128 guys in this long cross-country course. And they were running over hills and through woods and all these different things. And the race course was marked out by this set of flags. Well, they got down. It was right at the end of the race. Just a couple more uh, miles to go. And, and, and the runners were, you know, getting towards the end. And they were running through the woods. And th they were running through this path in the woods that came to a place where the trail was divided. And they had marked the trail by putting a flag on the trail to the left. While the first guy is running down the trail, he's not paying attention. And because he's not paying attention, he got to that place where the trail divided and he went to the right. He went the wrong way. But the crazy thing is, is that even though he went the wrong, the wrong way, everybody else, when they came, they saw that he was going that way and they followed him. The first five followed him, and the first ten followed him, and then the first a hundred followed him. There was one guy, there was one runner that was there, a guy by the name of Mike DeVelco. And he came to that place where the trail divided. And he saw everybody going this way, and he saw the flag. And he said, wait, we're supposed to be going this way. And so he went the right way. And he's running along, and everybody else is going the wrong way. And he's running along, and he stops. And he, he goes running back to the place where the trail divides. And he says, no, 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 it's this way. Look, the flag is right there. Come on, follow me, follow me. And everyone's like, oh, you don't know what you're talking about. And finally he said, okay. And he started running. And he convinced two other guys to follow him. The three of them were the only ones who finished the race. 125 people out of 128 disqualified. Because <laughs> they didn't follow the course. A person who has been used by God their entire life to build can destroy in a moment if they don't finish well. Paul says here that I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He says two things here. He says, I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. What does that mean? I, you wonder that? I'm being poured out like a drink offering. We don't have drink offerings in this day and age, but, but back in the day that Paul wrote this, this was a very common picture. Okay? It was both common for the Jews and also for the Gentiles. For the Jews, they would be sitting around a meal, and at the end of that meal, someone would raise a toast to God. And they would thank God for providing this wonderful meal for them. And they would bless God. And they would take what was left in that cup, the little bit of wine that was left in that cup, and they would pour it out onto the hot coals upon which they had prepared their food. And as soon as, as soon as the wine hit those hot coals, it would immediately evaporate. And that sweet aroma of the wine would come up. And it would fill the entire room. And so as they left, they would leave with the sweet aroma of the wine coming up. The Gentiles also did this. The Romans did this. At meals, they would raise a glass and they would thank their gods for providing for them and they'd take the little bit that was left out and they'd pour that out onto the fire. What Paul is saying here, I am being poured out like a drink sacrifice. In other words, the little bit in my cup that's left, the little bit of life that's left in me. And Paul knew he was going to death. 
Paul knew that he was about to die. He says, the little bit of life that I have left, I am taking that and I am pouring it out. And as I die, I pray that that vapor of my life that has been lived for God will arise and it will be as a sweet aroma to those that are around me, to those that have walked with me and whose lives I have been able to touch along the way. Don't you want to be able to say that? That your life has been poured out as a drink offering, as a pleasant sacrifice to God that blesses others? He also says the time has come for my departure. Literally in the Greek, the time has come to unloosen the ropes. It's again that, that picture of a ship being tied to the quayside. And, and the time comes and the, the ship horn blows. And the workers come and they unloosen those ropes. And the engines of the ship start. And that ship begins to pull away from the dock and begins to go out to sea. He says, the time has come to unloosen the ropes. The time has come for me to leave this port and to go out to sea and to enter another port. For Paul, his race was over. For Paul, his life was at an end. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. He says, live your life with purpose. Live your life intentionally. Don't just wander aimlessly through life. Live your life like you mean it. Like you're living it to win. So are you keeping the faith? What kind of a legacy are we leaving? You know, I specifically want to talk here today to men who are a little bit older, all right? How do you define older? Well, let me say men that are about my age. I'm, you know, 48, going to be turning 50 soon. I, I want to talk to men today who are 50 and older. If you look around this church, you will see that there are a lot of guys in this church that are young adults. We as a church are so blessed by having so many young adults in this, I mean, that, that 18 to 30-year-old range, we have a lot of them. But men over 50, how are you being in terms of being an example? How are you finishing up life? Are you being an example for the younger ones to follow? Paul says in 1 Timothy 4.16, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Are you keeping that faith? Are you keeping that faith? Are you keeping it personally? In other words, are you still holding to the truth? Are you keeping the truth pure? There is so much stuff in the church today. There are so many different doctrines, so many different ideologies that are trying to work its way into the church. Tell me older men, elders of the church, those that are not an elder because they sit on the elders board, but because you have lived and you have walked with Jesus for a long time. Are you keeping the faith pure? Are you holding fast 
to the things that you know are true and not being blown back and forth by every wave of doctrine? Are you keeping it pure personally? Are you keeping it pure in terms of not just your doctrine but also your life? Are you living the truth? Can people see that your life mirrors what you believe? Do they see Jesus in what you do? In how you behave? In how you treat others? In how you treat your spouse? In how you lead? Are you keeping it personally? Are you keeping it pure? Are you keeping it passing forward? Are you discipling? Are you spending time trying to pass down what you have learned to other people? And you know what? Sometimes that's your children, and sometimes that's not your physical children. Sometimes that's your spiritual children. Older men, are you mentoring? Are you taking time to intentionally mentor some of these younger guys and show them what a life of faith is supposed to look like? Like Paul, we have to be ready to go. We have to be ready to finish the race well. Many years ago, there was an explorer by the name of Lord Shackleton. Shackleton was the first man to reach the southern pole, Antarctica. And on his first trip to Antarctica, he had his little boat called the Yelko. And they were trying to get to this place called Elephant Island. From Elephant Island, they would be able to re-equip and they would be able to make a push inland. But first they had to go in and kind of explore Elephant Island. And so, there was no ice. They were able to sail into Elephant Island. He dropped off his men on the shore and he said, we're just going to go, we're going to scout the area, we'll be right back, don't worry, I'll return for you. Because, I mean, these guys were not well equipped. They only had tents with them. They only had sleeping bags. There was no way that they would ever be able to survive an entire winter. They just weren't equipped for that. And so the Yalco sailed out of Elephant Island. It went out for a couple of days and scouted some of the other inlets and some of the other areas. And they came back to pick up those men. But when they came back to pick up the men, the ice flows had come early. And Elephant Island was now completely surrounded by ice. And there was no way that small boat could penetrate that ice and get in to rescue those men that were now stranded. And a day went by, and two days went by, and a week went by. And Shackleton was saying, how are we going to get to these men? These men are all going to die if we can't get in there and somehow rescue them. And two weeks went by, and three weeks went by. And finally, one morning, they woke up and they looked out and the ice was gone. The wind had changed, the ice had moved, and they were able to rush the boat in. And Shackleton was really worried because he said, you know, what if we get in there and the ice closes behind us? What if we get in there and they're not ready? What if we get in there and the guys are still sleeping and their stuff is all over the place and, and it takes too long to get them onto the boat? If it takes too long, the ice will come in and we'll all be killed. But to his amazement, as they approached Elephant Island, he looked up and there all the men were standing on the shore ready to get into their little boat to come out. Their bags were packed, their sleeping bags were folded, the tents were all put back into their cases. Everything was ready. 
And as soon as they saw the ship, they were in that little boat, they had paddled out, they jumped in the Yalco, and the Yalco turned around and headed out, and the ice closed in just behind them. If they had been five minutes longer, they would have been killed. And after all the excitement, their hearts were racing. After they had finally got out, out into ocean, to the ocean, into open water, Shackleton turned to his men and said, Oh, man, I am so glad that you guys were ready to go. If we had been delayed, we would have all been killed. How did you know that today was the day? How did you know that, that, that we would come in today to rescue you? And the men said, Well, what do you mean? We've been ready every day. Every morning we have gotten up and we have rolled up our sleeping bags. Every morning we have gotten up and we've packed away our tents. Every morning we have gotten everything ready and in the boat and we have been standing by the boat ready to go. We were ready because you said you'd be back for us. And we believed you. And so the question is, are we ready? Are our bags packed? As our sleeping bags rolled up, are we in the boat? Are we ready to go? Are we finishing well? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for Father's Day. I thank you, Father, for the example that um, as I think of my life, my own father... And, and so many other men through the years that um, have lived godly lives and have so influenced my life that I am a different person today because of them. Father, I pray for each one of us. You will help us, Lord, to finish well. Especially the older men in this room. Lord, that you would allow them to be examples of what a life lived in faith can be. Examples of love and examples of, of, of gentleness and examples of patience. Examples of kindness and gentleness and truth. Father, help us all to live such lives that as people see us, they will see you. They will see Jesus and lives will be changed forever. Help us, Father, to finish the race you have called us to run and to not only finish it, but to finish it well. We pray this in Jesus' name.